Dean Adams, the Reverend Harry Baker Adams, was assigned to, to me as my advisor when I began graduate school. I was supposed to meet with Dean Adams to make sure that I was taking all the right courses to qualify for graduation and eventually ordination. Dean Adams also taught preaching class, and one day he asked me to stay after class. He said, your sermon is fine, but you need to work on how to read scripture. So he explained to me that the two of us would remain in the chapel until I read scripture to his satisfaction. I admired Dean Adams for the personal interest that he took in each student, and some nights he would even invite all of his advisees over to his home for just an evening of conversation. Dean Adams was so highly regarded in the university that he was eventually promoted to the post of chaplain of the entire university and later to the post of master of Trumbull College. He was integral to running the university. One night, my roommate, who worked in his office, asked me to go with her to set up for a student reception on campus. And so we were there in the kitchen getting ready for the reception when who walked in but Dean Adams, Chaplain Adams, Master Adams, wearing his skinny tie, his sweater vest, his tweed blazer, and his gray trousers. I was startled as I greeted him, Harry, what are you doing here in the kitchen plating cookies? He smiled his wry smile with a twinkle in his eye, and he said, oh, I, I like to do this. John the Baptist was equally, if not more so, startled when Jesus showed up on the banks of the River Jordan to be baptized. Jesus was way out of place. No way, says John. I'm not about to baptize you. If anyone's going to be baptized here, you should baptize me. John's whole purpose, you remember, is to prepare the way for people to receive Jesus. John has been preaching to the sinners to the Pharisees, to the spiritually lost, to repent. He says, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And now suddenly Jesus shows up to be baptized by John? Get out of the kitchen, Dean Adams. No way, Jesus. All four Gospels concur that John the Baptist immersed Jesus in the River Jordan. But only Matthew tells us this quirky little part that John tried to prevent it from happening, that Jesus had to absolutely insist upon it before John consented to do it, and when he did so, he did it reluctantly. Because, after all, who's going to argue with Jesus? So instead of telling Jesus... Baptism is for sinners, not for perfect people like you. John consents. Just as he had baptized the hypocrite and the prostitutes, he lowers Jesus into the flowing river and brings him up with his long hair dripping with water. Maybe John was reluctant because he didn't want to see Jesus immerse himself in that same water, in that same life, that all those other people were caught up in. It's easier, isn't it, to think of Jesus like that, smiling down upon us from the stained glass or whispering to us from the top 
of a beautiful mountain when the clouds float by than it is to think about Jesus being immersed in the real life that you and I share. We can imagine, can't we, sitting in silence in a beautiful place, meditating or praying and feeling Jesus stir our hearts or our souls. But can you imagine Jesus in your ordinary life? Can you picture Jesus on Facebook? Can you picture Jesus glued to his cell phone during dinner annoying you? Can you picture Jesus ordering a new pair of sandals on Amazon Prime? Can you picture Jesus voting in an American election or betting on the Super Bowl or reading fake news or writing a cute little spiritual blog called The Beatitudes? It's easier to keep Jesus over there, up there with God. You know, frankly, I'm with John the Baptist on this one. Jesus, you don't need to come over here with all of us to be baptized into new life. You are the new life. But then how do you say no to Jesus? A recent article in the New York Times describes how the parents of an autistic boy learned a new way to connect with their seven-year-old son. You know, sometimes autistic children will flap their hands or they'll spin in circles or do some sort of behavior that their parents find annoying. And naturally, the parents try to redirect the child's behavior back into more typical children behavior. Well, when seven-year-old Sawyer would run back and forth across the living room for no reason and hum and thump his chest, his mom and dad decided that they would try this new strategy of doing the activity with him. And the first time his mom tried this, Sawyer immediately stopped the thumping and the running, and he said to his mom, what are you doing? And mom said, learning what it's like to be you. The technique, you see, is called joining. And instead of trying to get little Sawyer to stop pretending and join them, they joined their son in his imaginary world. And it worked because within a week, Sawyer's teacher called from the school to say, I don't know what you're doing differently at home, but keep doing it. Sawyer usually gets about five timeout trips a day, and this week he only had one trip to timeout the whole week. When Jesus comes to John to be baptized, he chooses to join us to be with ordinary folks like you and me. He comes seeking to be immersed into the full reality of our lives. Jesus insists that this is what God intends. Let it be so, says Jesus, for this is what is right, according to God. Here comes Jesus. The first time he appears in the gospel, according to Matthew, as an adult, we've had the Christmas story, we've had the wise men, and now Jesus shows up as an adult, wanting to be baptized with every other common person. The fact that he wanted to do this is so startling, and I must say that for me, it's easier to help people than to join them. Sometimes, I just as soon keep my distance from other people's brokenness. Many of you know that I spent a month last summer on a remote island in Italy, perched in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, welcoming refugees who flee in those rickety boats, seeking a new life. 
There was one day in the morning when I stood on a military dock where they were unloading a Coast Guard ship full of teenage boys. They stepped off the boats barefoot, shirtless, with the blanket issued by the Coast Guard draped around them as they shivered. We handed them warm tea and we said, Buongiorno, bonjour, bienvenue, welcome. We said every language we could think of, hoping to connect with them some kind of warm welcome with the warm tea. And my heart broke as I looked into each of their faces and wondered about their moms and dads who didn't know if their sons were dead or alive. I ached, wondering what we could do about this global crisis. Each afternoon, my team ran an internet point so that these young teens could connect with their families back home to say they were safe. The feisty teenagers would line up outside of our office sometimes an hour or two before the internet point was to open in hopes of getting a low number so that they could get one of the limited times on the computer. One day, about an hour and a half before we were to open, I slipped out of the office to walk into town for lunch. One of the boys that I had befriended was waiting there outside the door. He said, where are you going? I said, to run an errand. I lied because I didn't want to tell him I was going out for lunch. Can I go with you, he said. Well, sure, I said, wondering what to do now. Together, we walked into town where the tourists were gathering at chic clothing stores and outdoor cafes where they were sipping cappuccino. I stopped at a place that I knew had quick food. He sat with me while I ordered a salad and I offered him a sandwich or a Coke. He said, I'm not hungry. I said, please, let me get you something. No, he said, I'm not hungry. I knew he was lying. I was self-conscious. I was uncomfortable. This was my break time and I needed to be alone. But what he needed was for someone to be with him, to feel safe, to talk, to just be a friend, or maybe a mom. I was afraid to immerse myself into his bleak reality. But Jesus says, let it be so, for this is what is right according to God. And Jesus tells John, we are going to do this, buddy. Now note that Jesus doesn't say, I am going to do this. Jesus says, it is proper for us to do this, not for me, for us. They are in this work of God's together. And so imagine, would you imagine John's surprise? Imagine everyone's surprise there on the banks of the River Jordan that day when Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism and the heavens break open and God says, way to go. And God says, this is my son. I'm pleased. Some of them even saw a dove. It's one of those rare moments in scripture when God seems to peel back an edge of the curtain to show us a peek at what God sees. Whatever mess we human beings find ourselves in, whatever joys are ours, whatever woes are ours, God intends to be immersed in our ordinary lives with us. A few weeks back, the Washington Post shared a holiday story about Patricia Woodall. Patricia is an influent woman in Washington, D.C. In the years when the AIDS epidemic was at its peak, she decided to volunteer 
at a shelter for men who were dying. Patricia herself was feeling a bit lost, but she desperately wanted to help. As a white, straight woman with no skills in either medicine or counseling, she felt pretty useless at this shelter for mostly African-American gay men. She volunteered to work the night shift. Her duties would be simply to carry water to someone who needed a drink or to help someone meander down the hall who was too weak to make it on their own. When 30-year-old Hugh moved in, he refused to come down the hall to the dining room where they played cards and drank coffee with the other housemates. And Patricia soon noticed that Hugh didn't sleep at night. He couldn't sleep. He was afraid that if he went to sleep, he would never wake up. And so Patricia would go into his room, sometimes taking with her two bowls of ice cream, and she'd pull a stool up by the side of his bed, and the two of them would sit in silence eating ice cream and watching old westerns all through the night. One night, Hugh said to Patricia, Why don't you lie down? She looked over at his bed. She laid down next to him. She could feel his big, bushy afro, his sharp, shoulder blades from his emaciated frame, and she wedged herself between the wall and the dying man. And then Patricia fell asleep. She was startled awake because Hugh was snoring. Finally, he could sleep. Finally, she saw what it took to make a difference. It wasn't skills. It was simply presence to be with, to immerse herself into his life. And there she found a holy joy, and Patricia became the executive director of that center, a post she still holds. So you see, Jesus summons us, as he did to John, to join him in going in God's direction. You know, that's the meaning of the word repent. One scholar says that to repent is not to feel bad, but to think differently, to turn around. And so Jesus invites us to turn around and follow him in immersing ourselves in the fullness of humanity. In his latest book, Brian McLaren writes that Jesus invites us 87 times throughout the Gospels to follow me. Not once does Jesus invite us to worship him. Instead, he summons us to love the way that he loved by immersing ourselves into the real pain and sorrow, the real challenges and joys of this world. McLaren suggests that the church might do well, this modern church of ours, to picture ourselves as schools or studios where people gather to learn to love, more than as places where we just recite the old doctrines or guard the old beliefs. What if the church, he says, was a laboratory of love? And how can each of us leave here today better prepared to love in the days ahead? When Jesus comes up out of the waters of the baptism, a voice of God says, this is my son. And the word used for son is the same word used in other parts of scripture translated as servant. So son and servant are the same. All of us are servants. You, me, everyone. We are called to turn around and to follow. You see, the reason that Jesus is immersed in humanity 
is so that you and I can be immersed in God. Our lives will never be the same. For we have been empowered by Jesus to love and serve with a new and holy energy. But it must be renewed. Last week, I went with a team of volunteers from our church to the job placement center over at Della Lamb. Each week, a team goes to work with the refugees to help them fill out the job applications so that they can become self-sustaining. We help them budget for their family expenses, and we determine how many members of the family need to work in order for them to meet their expenses. Last week, I had a client who was 33 years old, a young man who had just arrived in this country on November 17th from Somalia. He and his 28-year-old wife have six children. His English was tinged with a British accent. And, you know, I speak Texan, so we did have a little bit of a communication problem. But he was uber polite, and when I asked him, may I shake your hand, he said, no, thank you. I am a Muslim man. Then he gave me a tender, reassuring smile and said, after we finish, I want you to meet my wife. She's right over there, pointing to the hallway. So when we finished the application, I jumped up from the desk and I walked out into the hallway and I looked around and I said, where is she? Where is your wife? I want to meet her. And he said, oh, she's at our house, but it is very near. Well, now I'm on the hook. And so I go with him a block and a half to his apartment. It's an old red brick building with peeling white paint. We walk up to the second floor. We go into his apartment. His wife is there greeting us at the door. There's a soft rug and these beautiful fabric tapestries lining the walls, but no furniture. Frankly, it looks more like a tent than an apartment. Then she pulls back one of the fabric curtains and she invites me into the next room where there are four metal folding chairs. We sit down to visit. How do you like Kansas City, I ask her. She shakes her head, looks down at the floor, and she says, I don't know. I haven't been out of this apartment. She tells me that her children leave. They love going to school. And then she asks me about my family. All the while, she smiles nervously, folding her hands back and forth. We chat about cooking and about our extended families. She and her husband just exude warmth and humility and hope. And that afternoon, as I drove back to the church, I just felt lifted up. The joy of being in the home of that refugee family lingered with me all afternoon and into the evening. I kept holding on to the courage that I felt within their presence, the courage to risk all, the dedication they felt towards their children, the purity of the practice of their faith. It simply enveloped me, and I felt immersed into their kindness and their grace. I wonder if this is why my advisor, Dean Adams, Chaplain Adams, Master Adams, wanted to plate the cookies. Now I can see that it was more than a gentleman's humility and kindness that I witnessed. Now I know that he knew that when we immerse ourselves into humanity, we immerse ourselves in God. <laughs>